0: The following show is intended for mature audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome back Friday,
1: June 11th. 11th. Wow. How long you got to stare at watch to find it? <laughs> I,
0: I'm just still, I, you know, we say it every week, but I'm still stunned at how quickly time is going by. But good morning, everybody. Coffee with the Johns. Got a lot in the news today. We have uh, some things about the housing market, when we can expect things to start calming down. Never. And yeah, that's pretty much the the answer is never. <laughs> this is, There's no end in sight. Uh, obviously, this is market specific as well. I mean, some markets are going to see a slowdown, declines, depending on where it is. But uh, overall, the, the market and the economy are just, it doesn't show any signs of slowing down anytime soon. So, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about the labor market and how that's affecting pretty much prices everywhere. A uh, few more states are joining the pay you to work model. So, that's going to be pay you work.
1: Yeah. Get paid to work?
0: Well, for the last almost two years now, if you haven't seen, you're getting paid to stay home. So, paid not to work. Yes. So then you have the 4 million Americans quit their jobs in April. Uh, You have the G7 getting together and trying to tax all multinational companies. I mean, we have a lot going on, a lot of news, a lot of local news. San Antonio is getting a lot more jobs as it keeps being named one of the fastest growing cities. Uh, So we got a lot of good news for that. And we have a listener question about rentals that we're going to go over as well. So a lot in the news, a lot of things developing and trends and stuff that we will be sharing with you. So sit back, get your cup of joe. hold
1: on tight. Here we
0: go. (laughs) Uh, And always feel free to participate. You have opinions, thoughts, questions about real estate, anything, put it in the chat. Let us know. With that being said, I am your host, John Barbarian. With me as always is co-host, Mr. John Barr. How's it going, sir? Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> Mr. Tim Allens. Yeah,
1: like, fantastic.
0: Always, <laughs> oh, every time you call him. He's
1: fantastic.
0: How you doing? Fantastic. Multivitamins. Yeah. That's how he stays young. Good week. Been a busy week, right? Yeah. Running, was, I running t- around from I've barely seeing you in the office. I know, all I'm all trying this
1: to week. think like, well, what? A bunch of stuff happened, but I don't remember. Oh, we got our variants approved. Turned out that didn't matter. Uh, and there's still problems. Yeah, I listened to an interview we do with Seth Teal on the tips from the pros. And then just like I just can firsthand experience. It's like, yeah, yeah you do one. You, one department says, oh, you do this and you should be good. And then all of a sudden somebody else is like, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You go back to the original department like, well, we don't know. We don't have anything to do with that department. It's like, oh, my God. Like, you would think they have one department to deal with a house. It's like
0: everything that you have to do with the house, you have so many different departments depending on what – and they don't agree with each other. So it's like, what am I supposed to build, a Picasso-looking house because you guys don't
1: communicate? Oh, and there's some of these rules that are just like, why? I mean, we're, we're hung up now. I was talking to you yesterday about it. Like the overhangs yeah. on a house. Like every house has it to like protect from the sun, the water getting to it, get a little more water barrier from where you get this – everything like that. And it's something like, an that architecturally – Important, not an important piece, but it's like you look at it. It's like okay, single-family houses, single-story like that. They all have overhangs, unless it's, it's like a modern. It, house. It's
0: something you always expect on a house, but you don't notice it
1: until it's not there. Yeah, I think. and now we can't have it. So basically, there's some code, rule, law—I don't know—that you cannot put overhangs or, or projections, as they're called, within two feet of the property line. Like, but I can put the building. All the way to the property line, but I can't have an overhang. So I can move it one foot away from the property line. Can't have overhangs. Two foot away from the property line. Can't have an overhang. Three feet away from the property line. I can have a one foot overhang. And it's like I don't get the logic but like so. Why can I build a building all the way up to my property line, but I can't have overhangs in that two foot? Because it's what pool, I told you. Like,
0: if there's a bird flying on the other people's property, they can hit that overhang. So you gotta you gotta be conscious of the birds, man. I guess. You gotta be conscious of the birds.
1: It was just something that is like, oh my God. And then he's like, Oh, just because you got a variance and it even if it did include this, which it doesn't, I'm like, Why? So what do I they gotta go back to the board of adjusters now? And he's like, Well, you can't even the board of adjusters has nothing to do with this. You can't do it like "Oh, oh my god. It's like, so now we have to build, but essentially what it looks like we have to do is we're going to have to build a house that doesn't have overhangs on one side of the house.
0: Because that was the thing, right? Like, that's what was crazy. It's like, all right, who do
1: I speak to? He, him, he's just like, it's an IDC code. Like, you can't, there's like, why is that there? Like, What's are you IDC? In- IDC, national, or IRC, national, or residential. International. National? I don't know, but it's residential IRC. Just raise it up. There you go. The IRC. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what stands for. I mean, look, is it something residential code? Yeah, international residential code. So apparently, you can't have overhangs per the international residential code within two feet of a property line. Makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> I, that's I just, I just don't get it. It's like, uh, okay, so you can put a building that close, but you yeah. can't have an overhang. You know, then he's like, oh, it's a fire issue. And I'm like, okay, fire, fire issue. But I can still have the building all the way up there. I can fire rate right a wall and fire rate right over. And it's like. Well, but maybe plus, like, how
0: is a one foot overhang a fire issue? How? The only like, thing I it? can think of is like, all
1: right, so you extend mm-hmm. the property line. So if the neighborhood, the property next door catches fire, you have something two and a half feet closer that angles back to the pitch of the house. That's like 20 feet. But then it's just like. Okay, even then, it's like, but fire burns up, not down. Yeah. So why can't I have the building all the way up there, fire rate that wall, and like, Yeah, if that doesn't catch fire, the
0: freaking overhang isn't. But it's just one of those things like we talk a lot about is when you push back, they don't know. They're just there enforcing what's been put in place, but they don't understand why. Even when the variants that they were... Holding us up on, they all agreed like it was unanimous decision of yes because yeah. they're like yeah
1: makes common sense. Sense. Makes
0: sense. So it's like, okay, but in the meantime you're causing a lot of headaches and grief. And what's worse with this is that this you don't even have a review board.
1: Like well, you no, know, so basically it's like there's there's absolutely nothing we can do. Like even the board of justice can't do the IRC. It's like okay, it's international code, but I, I my thing was just like why. Like yeah. all the, all he's basically said every single one of those houses, like, so you're telling me that neighborhood and neighborhoods all over San Antonio that have the zero lot lines with overhangs. He's like, every single one of them is non-compliant. He goes to the current codes. Yes. If your house burns down and they go to rebuild it. They got to one, go through a board of adjustment to get a variance. Cause you guys stupidly zoned everything R five. Then I go to get a variance to rebuild their house. And then they can't even rebuild the house that burned down because now you're saying you can't have overhangs. And like, what is the point of that? And a lot of those houses, um, we're designing ours so it doesn't, but a lot of those houses, like the gables go towards that property line where it's like so that entire side of the house where the roof runs off isn't going to have a, pro- a overhang. Yeah. And my, me, it's like that it just sounds like it's a disaster waiting to happen when it comes to water penetration. Yeah, because, I mean, you run your siding all the way up, and then all that's going to be there is your decking, your siding, and a drip edge. And then your uh, – your shingles on top of it. Yeah. Like, how many times are we looking at a house that the fascia is completely rotted away because water has damaged that underneath that drip edge and stuff like that, where it's like, and that's the top of the wall, and water only goes down from there. So it's like the rot's going to start at the top, and just because of this stupid code, we're saying it's a, well, it's a fire issue somehow. I was like I don't, I don't get it at all. So
0: and maybe at one point when it was initially drafted, it probably was a fire issue. I, it, it's just what it is regulations over regulations and then they come up with more regulations without getting rid of the old ones and it gets to a point where the people that are supposed to enforce the regulations don't even know what the hell they're enforcing anymore because it's like these things don't make sense yeah, it, i don't know what to just, do uh, and then you have he said like two. Uh, it, make sure you guys go in and check out that uh that uh interview with seth teal uh it's in our youtube channel but he talked about that there's like 200 something, uh, departments boards boards in San Antonio. And I was like, <laughs> it's just San Antonio, not including bear County." <laughs> I was like, this is just beyond insane. I was like, what the, you can see the level of, um, inefficiency that you can create by having that level of boards, you know, it's, it's insane. But with that being said, uh, let's get into some real estate news. So one of the big, uh, Topics I wanted to touch on and everything here, every topic on here is going to be building on itself because everything's very connected. Uh, Mortgage lenders are loosening credit standards in May. So mortgage credit availability increased by 1.4% in May, a sign that volume hungry lenders continue to loosen credit standards in a highly competitive market, according to Thursday's data from mortgage bankers association. So, MBA's Mortgage Credit Availability Index, uh, which uses 100 as a benchmark, increased to 129 in May. Lenders uh, concerned over borrowers' ability to pay their bills at the beginning of the economic shutdown resulted in an exponential tightening of credit. However, May's credit availability inched to its highest level since early days in the pandemic, but remained at 2014 levels so prior to the pandemic it was actually at 180 something the index and then it dropped to like 120 so that's how much you know like they tighten all the credits because it's like we talked about it. nobody was working nobody was making money yet everybody still needed to pay their bills um so banks were like uh, yeah we're not lending to you guys overall increases were uh were driven by a three percent gain in the conventional segment of the market with a rise in the supply of arms and cash out refis, uh, says Joel Kahn, MBA's associate vice president. According to Kahn, this is, a consistent, this is consistent with the uptick in mortgage rates and a slowing refinance market, as well as, an, as MBA's weekly application survey data showing increase in interests and arms. Monday's data uh, from MBA revealed mortgage applications dropped for the third consecutive week. So here's what I'm seeing with this, right? We're having issues in the real estate market right? where inventory is ridiculously low. Demand is insanely high. This was already with the tight mortgage requirements and and the credit and all that that banks had. So we already have a supply and demand issue. So now they're starting. But then you also have on the mortgage side that they need to write more mortgages. They need to create more mortgages. They don't give a damn that, you know, and not to make them the bad guys. Everybody's got a business to run. Their business is creating mortgages. So they're not creating mortgages because, you know, there's not that many houses to buy and people are overpaying. People can't compete. So their thing is like, well, okay, let's loosen up the requirements. So more people can get loans and add more buyers to the market. I was like, I don't I that's why when people say you know when is this gonna crash how do you expect it to crash like I'm not seeing anything you know and I'm not seeing any form of any type
1: of bubble um I mean it's just one of the things that what's going to cause it to crash like nobody knows I mean just like in 2008 it caught everyone off guard. It's like looking back now, you're going to see like, okay, now I see why it crashed. It made sense that that's why it was happening. But the entire market was like, oh no, this is sustainable. This is, this is fundamentally right. Everything's going to be good to go. Like it's always some black swan event that too many departments are all tied. What is, what is that word? Um, Rickard uses a systemic risk or it's like, it's the risk that nobody can really even see. That's like when you have, when you add more parts, it's not one plus one equals two parts of risk. Like no one plus one equals three because now you have so many different extra pieces and you keep adding layers and layers and more and more people to that right. where there's like, there's an underlying risk that nobody can see that it, like when one piece fails, you don't realize the interconnectedness of everything or like, that's going to be something that like quote unquote crash it. But I think like fundamentally it's, it's going to keep going. It's going to eventually just stay to where, Hey, like people just can't afford it anymore. It's trying to find its new norm. Right. That's why right now I just, uh, was, I wasn't doing the full market update analysis, but I just needed a piece for an article I was writing uh, on bigger pockets. So i just like, did we have a double digit sales price again for, uh, the month of May, uh, so I could add that in there and sure enough we did. And we actually had the highest year over year appreciation in the past year. And it jumped to 19.7% hmm. median sales price increase from May of 2020. And it's everyone says like, "Oh yeah, but look where May was at like, no May of last year still had a year over year increase from 2019 of it wasn't anywhere high, but it was actually like two point seven percent, which is along the lines of your historical norm right. of two point seven percent. so like it was still a year over year increase last May in San Antonio, and then now we've had a twenty percent increase from 2020 to twenty twenty one and it's like, yeah, prices are going to continue to rise. I mean it was at I think it was at two hundred thirty thousand last year. Median sales price, and now it's at two hundred eighty thousand. Yeah, and for the month of May, it's like well, that, fifty thousand
0: dollar increase. So this is what's crazy, right? You think about it, and you say, okay, standard, you know, year over year has been around two to three percent, you know, There's appreciation nothing since we've been following it. But you know, more or less, like those are what you're looking at. And since last year to this year, we've had a twenty percent increase. Mind you, this wasn't that. Oh, but last year, housing prices took a a huge hit and they dropped. No, they never dropped. You know, not once did they drop last year. So prices never dropped. So it was going already on trend and it increased another 20%. But yet more people were unemployed. More people lost their jobs. A lot of people lost their businesses. All these things happen. Yet we still have such a huge fire demand. You understand? Like th- those are the things
1: that you're like, how? Hey,
0: you know well, it just, how these shows still have- like we had
1: them because the people that were creating massive employment weren't people that could afford houses even back then. Mm-hmm. And that that's my thing because like it's a lot of service workers. It's a lot of people that work in bars, restaurants, or service these industries where it's like people that could afford housing. Those industries were your bosses and your management. They didn't lose their jobs. They might have been furloughed for a while while waiting for business to come back, but they got their jobs back. It's like, but it's the underlying people. That's why employment spikes so much Is your entry-level positions yeah. are the ones that got laid off and caused unemployment to spike so high. But those people couldn't afford houses even back then. And now that when they pumped so much money into the market, it went to people that had assets and had jobs. So it's like – it. This, that's why it was always funny when they say, oh, yay, these stimulus packages, it's for the people. It's like – it's not going to the people that you're thinking it's going to. It's not going to people you're saying it's helping. Yeah. It's like, it's going it's like, yes, they are getting money for sure. But the bulk of it, when you're pumping money into the market, it goes to people that are running businesses that are running management or running these things that hold assets, stock market, stock bonds, real estate. Like it's putting those prices through the roof to where now those people that had moderate cash savings have a lot of cash savings. And now are like, shit, I can go buy a house now. Yeah. So it's like, that's like the problem where I can say like, oh, we need to close this wealth gap. It was like, then stop pumping money into the market to where it goes to people that have the money and creating it even worse. So
0: yeah, uh, and that kind of goes into the next article that I had here is you know the ha- the hot housing market leaves people afraid to trade up, and the housing market is so hot that some homeowners have become afraid to sell. In more normal times, first. And this is what I found interesting. So they talked about the process here. Like in more normal times, first-time homebuyers move into starter homes. As their families grow, they upgrade to bigger houses. Eventually, empty nesters and retirees sell their large homes to downsize or relocate. Now, with record high prices are are disturbing that usual churn, plenty of households could sell their homes for a big profit, but then they would have to find a new, uh, they would have to find a new place to live. Many are unwilling to compete in this frenzied housing market, frenzied housing market, where they could be subjected, yeah, subjected to the fears and costly bidding wars that have become, come in place across America. Brad and, okay, so these homeowners purchased the first home in October of 2015 for 162. They since had a second baby and need extra space. But the close by properties on their want is price range greater than five hundred thousand. So the close properties to where they live and everything that they would be moving to are worth right now are selling for over five hundred. The articles are written so badly and the grammar. I was gonna say I was like,
1: but I was like, what did you just try to say? But but the close by properties on their want record price, like so, the close by properties on their list want record price. They just forgot a word. I don't know. And I know it's like, it's not like we write these, like we copy and paste chunks of the articles to talk about, like this is from them.
0: And then they say, with so many uh, householders staying put, U.S. housing inventory has rarely been tighter. The variety of current properties on the market on the finish of April was down 20%, 20 20.5% from a year earlier. And the variety of properties on the market fell to a a reper... A report lows earlier this year. The shortage has helped carry dwelling costs to all-time highs and has began to decelerate the tempo of gross sales. Pinch provide is yeah, pinch provide is an enormous motive. Many economists anticipate dwelling costs to proceed to rise, making home ownership prohibitively costly for a lot of consumers and then they talked about part of the homeowners dilemma is the timing of twin transactions so they talk about
1: you know having to sell their home and buy the next one well and that that's a lot of things that you uh you have these contingencies to where it's like you can't buy this new home until you sold your old, old home for debt-to-income ratios. Yeah. But you, as the seller, it's like that is a big risk. It's like, well, what if their house doesn't sell, or if there's an issue, it falls out of contract, something like that. We've dealt with those transactions in the past, and we've successfully gone through them, but like not in a market like this. Yeah, different. Where so I, I represented some buyers uh, early, earlier this year, and that was their case. Like they had to sell their old home in order to buy a new one. But they were were very confident that their home was going to sell, and at the price that they were going to get, or price. Luckily, they had the equity in there to where it's like, even if it doesn't, we'll drop the price to make it sell. And they. Well, and then
0: also the the biggest benefit they had is that they were looking for a
1: million dollar home here. Yeah.
0: So they weren't competing necessarily in the in the market that's like you know,
1: so cutthroat at I the I moment. The Dominion prices, like, I've seen some of the stuff out there since then. And it's like, it's, it's pretty damn competitive. No, Cut there out
0: there too. They've gone up, but you're not having 30, 40, 50 showings in the first day you listed.
1: Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? You it's don't have the that many people. dollars price range. This right. Ridiculous.
0: So, so they're saying like one of the biggest factors is that. So a lot of people, uh, and this is something we've always done, is they do a seller lease back. So they sell their home with one of the contingency being that you rent it back to them or 60 days or so so they have time to buy another home the problem happens is that not many people can buy a home in 60 days right now yeah. so you have your 60 day lease back and then you're finding either a hotel moving in with relatives well, i mean a lot of people I are mean, moving to
1: like airbnbs yeah. like i talked to a gentleman earlier this year and he's like well we're we're selling our house in san jose california but we just moved here and just got an airbnb and we're just kind of hanging out and just waiting until yeah. so they sell their other house. So, and, that, and
0: that's kind of like what you can take away as far as you say, you know, as a real estate investor, somebody that's maybe doing marketing. Hey, podcast, thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you want to get very exclusive insider tips and strategies that nobody else is getting, then you need to join our text community by texting podcast to 210 Nine eight nine eight. That's two one zero seven nine four nine eight nine eight. Text the word podcast and you will start receiving insider information, things that are happening that we're realizing that we're implementing in real time that other people have no access to. So make sure you text us now. Now back to this show. Those are the things that you can offer homeowners, right? You can offer them, okay, you're selling, you're looking to upgrade or do something like that. How about if i buy the house we'll do a seller lease back for you that gives you enough time to find another house comfortably right where you don't have that pressure of like holy crap i gotta pack i gotta move i'm gonna have to live in a hotel uh we recently picked up one of our properties we picked it up that way we gave them a seller lease back uh luckily they were able to find a home really quick so it wasn't that big of a deal but it's a good negotiation tactic to use as an investor to use to be able to get contracts that you know not many people can compete with cuz not a lot of investors understand it or know how to use it
1: um, What or the risks associated with it
0: yeah you know you definitely have risk i mean on a seller leaseback one of the biggest things we try to keep in mind is that you want to make sure you're holding back some money that is going to them you don't want to give you don't want to buy their home and give them all of their profit up front because now, like the no incentive, incentive leave. yeah, and you don't have anything to you know Take mitigate the any losses. Well, I mean, you have in the
1: to... lease spec, you have like you have terms of like how long it's for, and then you have penalty to saying if you overstay, you're welcome. How many how much dollars per day is rent? And usually, we do double what the current rate is. So, if it's $1,500, we charge uh, 3000 equivalent for the month, so a hundred dollars a day, and then we hold back a portion of their proceeds. That is, as quote unquote, the deposit, but now we can legally deduct, they stay an extra seven days. And then we had a $10,000 lease back. I'm going to give them $9,300 back. I was like, is that $700 is mine? And because it's there as an incentive to seem like, Hey, come on, I have holding costs. I have plans. I have a business to run. I have things I have to do. I gave you the terms. You agreed to them. We agreed to them. And now you need to move. Like I can't keep sitting here waiting for you because I have interest. I have holding costs that I need to pay as well. And I need to get into this house. Yeah. So I need you out. And that's what it does. So basically at a certain time you need to be out or you can stay, but now I'm getting two times the going rent of what the rent is. So it's like, I'm getting, I even then it's like, I don't even want the hundred dollars a day. I want the house, but it's there as a penalty. And it's like, well, and if you do move out, you stay 10 days, I'm taking a thousand bucks. Yeah. But it's like, I really don't care about that. It's like, I want the house to move in my project because I have contractors. We have timelines. We have scope. We have things we got working in our business. We're planning on to start that house. And
0: we have seen it time and time again that we do seller leasebacks. lease backs. They say, oh, I just need a week. We'll give them two or three weeks because we know whenever anybody says something, it's always like try to double it at least because it's never that quick. But we always give them extra. And a lot of times we give it. We give them that lease back for free. We don't charge them any rent. We don't charge them anything. It's like, all right, you can stay an extra two weeks for free. But we are holding back money. And any day after those two weeks, you're getting charged 100 a day. And we've still been writing smaller checks to them because they overstayed those days where it's like, in, and all of a sudden, when they realize that we're telling them, you are losing 100 a day. Oh, I'm going to be out tomorrow. Okay, well, that's then that's only going to be 200. But you're still losing 200. All of a sudden, they get that motivation. They're out like that. Ooh, gotta thing. go, gotta go. You uh, know, yeah. so it, it it really works to protect yourself. And if you're a wholesaler, it works to protect your buyers. So keep that in mind. And then the last point on this on this whole thing is, this is why when people talk about San Antonio, why I don't see San Antonio slowing down anytime soon in the next couple years at least because affordability those these people that they bought a house for 160 in 2015 and in their neighborhood they're seeing houses for 500 grand they got to move to more affordable places they can't afford a $500,000 home because unless they got a massive pay raise or a crazy job they're
1: not going to be able to afford those houses well i mean the only thing you can do at that point is like if houses are for 500,000 and you bought your house for 160. you have a huge equity spread or you have to take that three 350, 400 grand, whatever you get from selling your house. And you have to use that full amount as a down payment on your next house to lower your mortgage payment as low as you can get it.
0: Yeah. But that's assuming that their home went up that much as well. So, I mean, but given that, like, that's why we see so many people moving to San Antonio. We're seeing people come to San Antonio because it's so affordable to live here. Prices are so much lower. Rents are lower. The cost of living is lower. So we're seeing, and then you're so close to Austin, right? I mean, you're an hour away from Austin. You want high-paying jobs, tech jobs, whatever it is. Um, the
1: amount of work in construction going on in 35, I just went out to a... a- of our rental properties over there in shirts Hmm. and uh they've been talking about a lot of expansion a lot of a lot of business being done out that way and i mean even just on the main road to get to that neighborhood once you get off 35 there's been all kinds of new development but leading up to that like there's massive amount of uh, widening of 35 going on leading up to that getting us closer to san antonio and Austin. like developing the roads developing new uh exits and doing more uh, road work to make traffic flow a lot quicker they widen the bridges added turnaround lanes like whoo they're really expecting this area to really blow up Well, they up. built
0: two big theaters there what was it, a year or two ago already and right next to each other yeah where there's nothing but like vacant land all around them they're not building those two massive theaters and it's like a whole little like complex of things that you can do in there because they don't feel like there's going to be people flow right yeah. like they they see the developments they see the builders they see all that coming so it's like you that's why when you follow commercial so there's a there i don't know if they still do it but there used to be a segment on the san antonio business uh san antonio business journal um where they did the crane watch they still have it right and the the crane watch would tell you about all these things that are going on but when you pay attention to that it's like these big corporation companies that are putting millions of dollars to develop something they're not doing it without any prior analysis and data to prove that the people are going to be there. The money's going to be there. The the income is going to be there. They don't invest that kind of money. So when you look at stuff like that and you see like the apartment buildings are being put up, all the buildings, uh, uh commercial buildings are being put up. Like there's a reason those places are being built.
1: Yeah. Know? And that's one of the things that like, I still don't quite understand of like, okay, where did all these people come from? Like pre-pandemic, like, it was, it wasn't a stable market as far as like supply and demand. We were still in pretty much a seller's market, but like it wasn't as bad as it is now. And now even like the rents and rental properties is like, there's a shortage of rental housing. Even there's Mm -hmm. a shortage of regular housing. Like there wasn't this much of a shortage pre pandemic. So like what happened in that market towards like, you think if you're having lack of housing demand that or housing supply, it's like, well, everyone's trying to upgrade to go buy a house. So you would have more vacancies in rental properties in apartments you're not having that you're having a massive shortage of people wanting rental property like it's both all, all across the board it's like but yeah. where did all these extra people come from and it's not just like here in Texas like they're saying like it's nationwide of like put something on the market boom rented right away or you put something on uh for re- housing costs boom sold right away like so find where's all these extra people coming from and it, it that's something that is kind of perplexes me of like how and where are these people coming from that are renting everything and buying everything?
0: Well, I think it's like what we talk about. They're, they're literally coming from all over the place. Everybody is searching for affordability and you're seeing, you know, uh, affordability in Austin is a huge issue, right? And you'll see more, I think, more and more people from Austin moving to San Antonio because you're going to see that, that they're living there. They're spending 500 grand for maybe a starter home that's a little dinky house, and it's like,
1: shoot, for 500 grand in San Antonio, I can no, get a even, hell of a not house. Not even that. It's like, Austin has even a tighter market than we do, significantly tighter I know. market. That's or what I'm saying. That's, but like, everyone's searching for affordability. Like, it has, I don't think it has anything to do with affordability because I'm talking about like, why is there such massive demand for housing? There wasn't, and it's like, it's like half of the months of inventory and supply than there was pre pandemic. Yeah. Like, so where'd all these extra people come from? That's what I'm saying. Like people are looking for affordability from all other okay, states. So, but why is every – the entire nation have that problem? Nobody has an over – like a, it's like we have so much supply and no demand. Like every article I read from the east coast, west, north, south, everybody is like there's no houses to buy. There's nowhere to rent. All the rents are sky high. I mean, In San Antonio? No, the nation. Everywhere. Yeah. Like is searching affordability. So that means people are leaving somewhere and looking for affordability. But then – those somewheres that you're talking about, they're leaving from somewhere. Like well, more no, expensive, they, they, areas. But no, but they're more expensive areas. But yeah. they have no demand. They have no supply. The demand, the demand there is still insanely strong. Where?
0: Okay, I see what you're saying. It's like
1: where are people moving from? That like across the board, everybody is like, there's such a demand for housing. Like, yeah. What caused all this demand for housing? I get if it was just like, well, and I, don't homes. you think
0: that it could also be just because they see interest rates at all time low they feel like you know if they don't jump on this right now and they're like well you know wiser- i will want maybe a bigger house or and and then you hear like the news the media everybody's blowing up like well texas is one of the best places to live florida is one of the best places to live so it's like people are like well let's I, just move there. That still, does,
1: that still doesn't expand explain why mm-hmm. rent, there's no rental property there's nothing for rent either like apartments
0: yeah Well, they were saying, I was reading an article that said like most, a lot of renters are people that wanted to buy a home, but
1: couldn't find anything. So they're renting until they can. So, okay. So they can't Mm -hmm. buy a house. So they go to rent. So that's increased. So you're saying that there's just not enough houses Mm -hmm. and there's not enough apartments for rent. Right. So, But a year ago before the pandemic, that wasn't a problem. So where well, is all it's, the extra I think, people, I supply think it's of people It's from? just,
0: it's like the herd mentality, right? Just because everybody's out buying, everybody's out moving, everybody starts questioning like, should we move too? Should we go somewhere? Everybody's leaving California. Should we leave California? Everybody's leaving Seattle. Should we leave Seattle? So why
1: does California and Seattle have the same problem that we have?
0: Because probably people from other parts of California are moving to other parts of California that are cheaper or, or better or more affordable. But it
1: still comes down to, there's more people coming into a market well, people aren't coming out of thin air. Like, I know. That, that's what it seems I like you're saying. Are no, no, people no. manifesting? I know, but that's just said. Like, <laughs> where are the? It seems like they're coming out of nowhere. Because it's like, so where are all these people coming from? If everybody's having this problem, to where it's saying like, oh, like New York and California, you're seeing this massive drops in population. You're seeing a yeah. housing market that's depressed, and you are, but you're not. You read of markets, and like California's still got the hottest real estate markets in the nation, as far as home prices appreciation and low well, supply. Yeah, be-
0: home price appreciation by percentage or by you're just because they have more expensive housing.
1: Yeah. But that's what I said they're, but they're how they're as far as percentage increase in houses and as far as properties available for purchase, mm-hmm. like they, their entire state is like Austin.
0: Well, those were the things that I was also wondering when we talked about, but you said in San Antonio, that's not the case. It's like, okay. Yeah. So you have a tight inventory, but are your sales volume just the size they were before or higher? Right. Yes. So, yeah, you might have a tight inventory simply because nobody's selling. Yeah, you know what I mean. So it's like, yeah, you have the hottest market because there is no market. You know, like nobody's selling houses, so a little bit of the sells sells. So if instantly. they're not selling
1: houses in California, that means people aren't leaving, or they're buying second homes. That, that's that was just the thing. It's like, okay, so that could be something. It's like, hey, people are with cash are just buying up vacant properties and just sitting on them.
0: So that's for everybody where- listening. Who out there feels like doing some research? (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, we talk a lot about the reason we do Coffee with the Johns, the reason we put out the market updates and everything is because we do it more for ourselves. And then we just want we'll share it with you guys because we're doing it anyway. Right. But we need to be educated as investors. This is the kind of data that helps helps you understand why certain things, like when people freak out and they're panicked, they're like, oh my God, Texas is, you know, it, it's on the board. It's in a bubble. It's got to drop. It's grown too fast. And all these things it's like, you're talking out of your ass because you just don't know. You're not looking at data. You're looking at headlines. Yeah. But when you look like we had talked about last year of uh, Newsom being one of the top salesmen for U-Haul, mm-hmm. right? And the U-Haul prices being what? Like 200 from California here and like 1300 from here to California? Because, or- no, vice versa. 1,300 from California to here and 200 from here to California so that people could take U-Hauls back to California. Yeah.
1: Well, Brian so, Pauling just made a, a good point that it's like that could be a reason. It's like maybe the millennials are leaving mom's basement and grandparents aren't dying or downsizing quick enough. And that could be. It's yeah. where it's like you had people that were living together and are now like, I want to go live on my own. So if you have a massive – influx of and that's where we're saying like where are these people coming from that are sucking all the demand from not only housing so I can get apartments moving to houses but who's absorbing all the apartment the vacancy apartments is like those people are coming from somewhere. Yeah. Whereas like where is it that is these people are leaving from and,
0: and absorbing apartments and housing Literally at any price point, because I mean, we see apartments like areas in San Antonio that they're renting like a studio for $2,200. Oh, just We're like, what the hell? And they have a waiting list. Or just
1: even like <laughs> our rental properties, I put it up for rent. And I'm like, somebody's paying that price to live there. It's like, and that's what the market's bearing. It's it's like, our rental just,
0: properties are awesome. I don't know what you're talking about.
1: But even, yes, it's just talking about size. So, like, it's the size of the apartment the size of the house for the number of bedrooms and bath, like a 3-1. You, and, you uh, never heard that.
0: Size doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs>
1: that's what I've been told, okay? Uh, okay. So, uh, we're going to have of, to, we did, you did, you didn't play the warning before we started this, right? Yeah, we right? did. We did. Warning. Okay, that cool. warning is always there. If you didn't uh-huh. see it, that's your problem. Yeah, we came in late, I don't know, it started over from the beginning. But, but that's what makes a point where, like, they're coming from, um, somewhere and then uh Val puts there maybe because yeah. of the pandemic there has been more divorces so that people need homes College college students leave their parents houses maybe multiple families who live together are now want now want their well, own and that makes sense it's like yeah. people have to be coming somewhere and like and that's something to me it's like what would cause a market to crash and why I'm asking these questions is like if demand stops mm-hmm. it's like so what's fueling this demand so it's like okay everybody's wanting housing right prices are hard. there's limited supply hitting the market it's like okay so you have supply and demand aspect if we increase the supply and the demand drops off then we have a, the opposite problem of too low inventory. we have too much inventory right so that's the question of like what is driving these people to the new people the demand in the market it's like the low interest rates all that beyond well, and, the low interest and rates, the low also, inventory beyond yeah, that I, it's like where are the people that can afford this coming from i or, think it's
0: like what you said too though is who were the people that were most affected were your lower income entry level jobs, your middle management, white, is it white collar? White collar is people that make more money, right? Blue collar is the workers. So, uh, but middle income to upper income, these people, they, you know, they were able to sustain, they had savings. A lot of people in their investments have been doing very well. That's the same reason why we've seen the stock market blow up, Bitcoin blow up speculation all over the place is because they've been doing very well. So I think, yeah, all of these things play a factor in everything. So when people say, you know, what's the, what's the thing that's going to bring the, the market down? Or, you know, at, when it first happened that people were asking, how did the pandemic affect affect your business? Like, it's hard to tell right now, because it's not always just one thing, one area. It's what you talked about at the beginning. Everything is connected. It's you know, I remember when I was doing construction before I moved to San Antonio, we would do we were going to work on projects and everything, and the kids that were in their 30s were living with their parents, right? Still from the 08 issue. Yeah. And I think also because like they were saying, well, they have massive college debt. They they can't find a job that pays them enough to get a place or they're saving for this, whatever the hell it was. Yeah. But they were in their 30s still living with their parents. Yeah. This
1: was eight years ago, nine years ago, right? So, yeah, that was a uh, huge that was like, trend. That's 13 years ago now. You're getting older, John. What? Then back no, in like 2008, here, and 2009. No, that's when, when it, it, from 2008,
0: 2009, oh. that they moved in with their parents. But when I was working, it was like eight years ago before I moved to Texas.
1: Going on eight years, yeah. Longer than that. But, anyways, with that, okay, so now that makes sense. To back mm-hmm. to like, Where's this demand coming from? So you take that all into account, all the comments. Here, and I thank you, everybody, for putting in those comments. I mean, that's yeah. the kind of discussion things we're looking for because it, 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 that's the reason we host the show is we want to get – I mean it's asking a question. We're debating it and with comments from all these other people saying like, well, this is all these things considered toward things that I didn't consider like Brian Pauling put in here. They got – like people had a massive income in cash from – a. For a family with the COVID relief also got the ability to pull a hundred thousand dollars of 401k plans, deferring taxes over three years. Where it's saying like, okay, so that is where a lot of people got yeah, their cash. they were sitting of at home. Their audience is like, oh, you can pull this thing and people or pull from your 401k. Like, huh? How much money do I have in my 401k? And they look and it's like, well, man, I actually have eighty grand sitting there, so I could actually pull that out and get a get a house. So you have so now that stirs the next question to where. Okay, so now you have a lot of people that weren't financially responsible, weren't financially savvy. They weren't able to save up the cash to be able to afford a home. And now all of a sudden they realize they can get all of this cash and they go buy housing, Yeah, which isn't a very smart idea. You're literally pulling from your future. Your house is
0: an investment. What are you talking about?
1: (laughs) True. Um, But is that the precursor to another – Problem as far as foreclosure crisis, to where it's like, yes, we have more sustainable underwriting standards, but you still can't. You're not interviewing that person. You're looking at him on paper yeah. of just saying like, hey, you have the job, you have the cash. That's really about it. They're not looking back six years, being how did you spend your money, how did you get that cash, are you a good long term bet on this property? Well, The house might appraise, but you have all these people that shouldn't be homeowners all of a sudden coming with a bunch of cash becoming homeowners not understanding like the costs associated with that. They're just looking at it from like, I can afford this payment. Okay. Yeah. But now you're at 45% loan to value or debt to income ratios. And it's like, how are you going to fix up maintenance? Especially the, the tighter markets right now, the seller doesn't have to do anywhere near the maintenance. No. You can sell houses with 25 year old air conditioners because people are just so starving for the property. And now when that AC goes out and they're just like, Oh, it's a $9,000 air conditioner bill. They're like, I can't afford that. Well, we can loan it to you at 9% interest rate. And now they get themselves into this debt cycle again. Yeah. To where it's well, like, is it creating a bigger problem that everyone's looking at the 2008, the way the crisis started over there? And they're not, but now it's like, okay, that's not happening because that was an underwriting issue. You're giving money to people that those ninja loans that didn't even have to have jobs, the adjustable rate mortgage. Well, the lending standards are better. You're not looking at it from the fact of like, could this massive amount of people that are now buying houses, moving out into the world, afford to be able to live out in the world? Because right now it seems, yeah, they all got cash. Well, like cash runs out pretty quick. If you, especially if you're like, what's that? Uh, how's that term go? Like, you uh, somebody with money meets with no experience meets somebody with experience and no money. Well, eventually, the person with the experience can leave with the money, and the person with the money is going to leave with the experience and no cash like you have all that, like all these Wall Street trade these Wall Street bets and stuff all like the AMCs, the GameStops and the, the Dogecoins and stuff like that. It's like your professional traders, your Wall Street people, like they're eventually going to win. Like yeah, you might get them in the short term by with these short squeezes and stuff like that, but it's not going to last forever. No. Eventually you will be the one to lose in that. If you're trying to day trade stuff, cause these people have been doing it for years. They got computers that trade in milliseconds. Well, the, I think they... the
0: biggest, the biggest difference though, that's not gonna, that could prevent a lot of people from foreclosure is how soon did they buy between like last year and this year? Because we don't see a slowdown anytime soon. So, Houses are going to continue to appreciate. So even if they made all those mistakes, if they need to sell, they're going to have the equity spread to sell, right? It's going to be those people that I think are overpaying 20 grand for a house, paying cash and stuff like that, where the prices haven't caught up to that. And then on top of that, they bought a house that needs AC, that needs these kinds of repairs. So it's like, not only are you over leveraged, but you also have a house that needs work. So you're extremely over leveraged. So when the market stables off, that's going to be a problem because in order for you to sell for that maximum price, you're going to need to make those repairs. So that's when short sales are going to be a thing of, to rave on. But it's just, are you
1: buying to hold or are you buying and to speculate? And, that, right? and the, the thing that comes down to it is like everyone gets tied up in like buying for appreciation, buying for appreciation. Yeah, like we had a conversation with a gentleman that it really seemed like they're helping. Like they were trying to buy something off the MLS to do the renovations and resell it. And I'm looking at it. It's like, well, the, it's priced at the MLS. I like, yeah, it's at a quote unquote discount from what the potential ARV is. But when you actually or not even at ARVs, like what the house would be worth if it was in renovated conditions, but like the whole house needs a massive renovation. But so you're buying off the MLS going to do that renovation and sell it. Well, yeah, but next year when I'm doing this renovation, the house will be worth 500 grand. Yeah. Well, it's, it's only worth 400 now. So you're saying there's gonna be a hundred thousand dollar appreciation in a year. I mean, I'm blowing those numbers out of portion a little yeah, bit yeah. but it's just one of those it's like you're betting solely on the appreciation the houses is going to be worth more mm-hmm. and it's one of those like those are the people that are going to get caught to where like you got to look at this from a long-term perspective like don't be so reactionary of like oh my god the houses have been going up for 11 months they're going to continue going up a double-digit appreciation like it's not sustainable it can't go like that forever Yeah. or like and that's why my questions are like what is driving this constant demand? Because I feel like it's going to be one of those things that it's there and it's going to stop pretty quick within a few months. It's not going to go backwards. I don't think at all, but like, you're going to see demand, like it's, it's going to slowly start tapering off where prices get to too high. And there could be like an inflection point to where it's like, Hey, that appreciation you're talking about, then six months after you're going to have six months of double digit appreciation. Like, I don't think it's going to continue to jump like that or, and it could, but don't bet on that being your only investment strategy. Like yeah. don't buy only because housing prices are going to go up and I can sell later in the future. Cause you ask anybody in 2006, seven and eight, that was buying in Phoenix saying like, Oh, I'll just sell it in six months and it'll be worth $50,000 more. Ask how well that worked out for him in 2009 when yeah. housing prices dropped $150,000 out of nowhere. Yeah, so it's you've got to really ask he, these questions.
0: Keegan did have a point that we didn't touch on is, there's also a ton of investors coming into the market right now as well, buying up properties left and right, you know, uh, because as inflation, as all these things pick up, owning a house is the best protection against inflation. You know, a house is an amazing asset when inflation is a worry. So you we are seeing more and more investors. I mean, we see it even ourselves, right? Properties, any wholesalers, why are they wholesaling houses at these prices that just make no damn sense? Because there's so many investors picking up houses and they don't even care what the price is. They just want to pick up houses. Yeah. Maybe they're strapped with a lot of cash, whatever it is, but they're picking up houses like crazy. Yeah. Old sellers don't got to sit on properties very long. You put a property on the MLS, same thing. Even if it needs work, it sells instantly. So, yeah, investors are a huge uh, factor in who's buying up all this real estate. And even when prices start stabling off and
1: everything, like, Whenever that does happen, I think investors are still going to be those yeah. main buyers. Well, and I mean, he puts in here it's like, but that doesn't explain high rental. But then Brian mentions an article that says uh, loss of construction after 2008, the market's never recovered. Yeah, or it's like, yeah,
0: like we've been short on inventory for a while. It wasn't and that just could now. That's
1: like as the generate like millennial generation is trying to move out and move on to their lives. It's like, okay, I'm in my 30s, I need to grow up, and I need to go find my own place and stuff like that. Like there's just nothing there, and. It's, well, it's even if construction hasn't recovered, yeah. it doesn't stop the government from adding more regulations. But even then, like to
0: build. just the investors picking up more houses, that is causing more rent, uh, shortage in rentals because now it's like you have less houses, so your only option is really to go rent. You don't have other options of there's no housing, so you gotta rent. You have to yep. go to a rental. So I guess you, it's, it's just pushing. that it's multiple
1: yeah. multiple factors, and I think it comes down to like I, I'll be curious like is that what's causing it is that a bunch of people that didn't have cash now have cash or have made money. And now are like, okay, I can afford to go buy something. And like, that's where the demand, the true underlying demands coming from is people trying to go from mom and dad and kids living with them and separating and wanting to one household now becomes two. Yeah. And that's where it's at. And then it's just like, yeah, there's no, you, it's an over like regulated construction industry mm-hmm. and there's no lumber to even supply it there. Or it's like you have a lot of things like fighting that reason oh, yeah. that you can't get the yeah, supply in the market. Expensive,
0: yeah. Well, I wanted to touch on a – we had a question uh, come in. And this lady was wondering if San Antonio still makes sense for investing in rentals. Because she's been trying to buy rentals here, and she cannot – putting 20 to 25% down, she cannot find any properties that would even cash flow $150.
1: What is her de- definition of cash flow, though?
0: Exactly. So I that was one of the uh, I sent her back. sent back a few questions to her. I was I was asking her the same thing. I was like, "What are you factoring in from gross, you know, cash flow to net cash flow? Like, what are you factoring in for expenses for property managing for everything? Because if you're putting 25 percent down in San Antonio, do you believe right
1: now you can cash flow more than one fifty? Well, I mean, that's what I said. Like, what is she taking into cash flow? Because remember we had somebody contact us a while back. I can't find $150 cash flow. But then they're taking out this much for CapEx. This no, much no, no, no. I'm saying based on have... what we do. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Exactly. And, that, yeah, that, that was, like, was my I, thing. I'm like, you should be able to find that. If you're putting 25, 20 to 25%, like, there's no reason why you can't find that. I you mean, know, just the
1: neighbor, like some of the neighborhoods we own our rental properties and like, obviously we run comps on those things for values and rents yeah. and what we're renting them for. It's like houses are selling for 180,000, 190,000 and they're renting them for 14, 1450. Yep. Like, I feel like if you're buying that house for 180, putting $36,000 down, let's take you to 144 mortgage balance and it's renting for 1400. It's like, you're still at a 1%. Like, yeah, yeah we have high property taxes here, but they're not that ungodly high. That's where it's like it's got to be what it's your uh, Seth made the comment where um, like these uh, what did he call them just people that read Bigger Pockets articles and come in with these like I want a two percent I want a one and a half percent rental value I want to be able to house hack and have them play cover my mortgage completely like there's this distortion of they find these articles of what investing should be like based on what it was in uh-huh. 2009 So where it's like yeah that was in a depressed market you're not gonna be able to find that stuff now. Uh, like they come the the amount
0: these... of people that I come across consistently talking about has, house hacking is almost as annoying as the amount of people who are talking about Bitcoin. Like, my God. You know, like, just stop reading these stupid ass articles. I get why house hacking sounds amazing, Oh, just right? the
1: unrealistic expectations. It's just, like,
0: it's just God. like, a lot of these people that are even talking about it, they're talking about what they did when they started 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, it's like different markets, people. Different markets. House hacking right now, especially like in San Antonio, is not that easy to find. Oh, but I can find a duplex, live on one side, rent the other one, and they take care of the mortgage. I'm like, okay. And what else are you asking, Santa? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's like, where the hell are you getting this from? Like, I get
1: it. It's an idea. Yeah. It's well. It's also that they read articles online and they like they read books. Like I I know you read like these uh, the Bigger Pockets book or how you should invest in rental housing. And it's like, yeah, if you can find those things, great. But also you being a retail, I'm going to call them retail investors, Mm -hmm. not investors like we are, though it's like, no, we're in this every single day. It's like us professional people that are in this every single day, all day, do this for a living. Like we're not going to let those opportunities go. We are going to capture those and take them on. Like, why would I sell that thing to you for, to make five grand? When it's like, I can buy that and turn that into 50,000 in three years. Exactly. It's like, I'm not, you're not going to let that go to like you as a retail investor. Like you have to have realist, realistic expectations of what it is. And everybody wants like the, like, well, I got $10,000. I want to be able to house hack and like do all these things. Like, yes, you might be able to find that, but like, good luck, especially in this like insanely hot market right now. Or like you're buying for the wrong reasons.
0: Well, house, anything is possible, right? You can house hack.
1: It's just, yeah.
0: Can you do this at a profitable scale? You know, because yes, you're going to house hack. Okay. Maybe it took you however the hell long it's going to take you to find something that somewhat makes sense for it. And then what? Like, okay, you have it. Now what? When's the next one you're going to be able to find? When's the next property you're going to be able to buy? Like, You got to be able to just move on from whatever shit you read, some article somewhere or anything. Or One thing I, I try to stress a lot about is you need to invest in the market that you live in the way the market is, not the way you want it to be, right? Like People are going places wanting a market to be a certain way, and it's like that's not the market, but that still doesn't mean that there isn't deals out there. There still it doesn't mean that you can't invest in real estate. It's just the market is different, you know, and you gotta adjust that. But you come with that mentality of like, but I, I heard on bigger pockets house hacking, and I need to do that. It's like
1: okay, well, go somewhere well, to house. Good hack. Luck. Well, you then know? it's just that like South Dakota, one hundred and fifty dollars a month cash flow. Like if you can find that for sure, and one, I wouldn't. Like, not suggest buying a house with only one hundred fifty dollars in cash flow, um, for sure. Or like, if you're doing it, are like just ba- on basic math of just saying like, hey, what is my rent to what is my mortgage payment? Not property management, not capex, no, nothing else. Like, you shouldn't be buying anything that doesn't have at least three hundred dollars spread between what you can rent it for and what your mortgage payment is two fifty. If it's a newer house, it's not going to have any maintenance aspect to it. But I, I can't find it very hard to believe that I can't find anything for one hundred fifty dollars. Like. Well, yeah. When you take out ten percent in capex, you take out ten percent for uh, property management. You take out eight percent for vacancies. You take out all these other things that they say you should take out of your cash flow. It's like, yeah, you can. And at that rate, you sh- if you broke even or got fifty dollars over all of those contingencies, you should be happy.
0: But yeah, and that's where I I'm like, even one fifty. I told her I was like, even one fifty cash flow is not bad if you have insane contingencies. Yeah. Because if you have insane contingencies, chances are you're never going to actually spend that well, money. Like, so in reality, you do have more cash flow. You're going to yeah. be making more money, right? Because that money is not being spent
1: anywhere else. So okay, you have one hundred and fifty, but you have these insane contingencies. Well, you look at that. It's you. like I just said. I said the number of three hundred dollars. Yeah. Well, you think you rent for fifteen hundred dollars, you're going to take out ten percent for uh, maintenance and ten percent for property management. Well, there's three hundred dollars right there. And then you're saying, oh, 150 on top of that, $450, like, spread. Like, yeah, if that's the numbers you're running, it's going to be very hard for you to find a spread like that. Like, I, I find it very hard to do that. Like, some of our rental properties that we've owned for two, three years have now those spreads. But that's the thing about real estate. You have to buy, you have to hold, and you have to let appreciation kind of go up. And that's how you make your money. Well, and and you, eventually you, you can get to the point But it's like everyone wants to buy a house and immediately retire off the cash flow. And but you like, also
0: got to buy right. Because yeah. that's that's also the thing is like your CapEx, like your CapEx doesn't need to be 10% if you fully just renovated the whole house and you did all the major components and everything like that. You build a good cushion. Or if you bought the house and you have already a good cushion in case shit happens or you have a reserve of cash, then your CapEx doesn't need to be that high. You, you know, the chances that you're going to need a $10,000 repair in the first year on your house is because you did the due diligence very bad or – some act of God destroyed something in your home, right? Like it's just, it's an insane amount of money to spend. So yeah, you're, you're what you're budgeting. All these things are insane. They got to be high or you're just not looking in the right areas. So the next question was from her was what are areas to pick up rentals in San Antonio? So you recently just uh wrote an article that you you posted or you're going to be posting? I posted it yesterday. You posted it to BiggerPockets. Uh I will be posting it to our website as well so you guys can check it out. Um and it's all about how the San Antonio market looks, where to buy, you know, where to invest. So you want to talk a little bit about as far as that question goes, where should she invest for rentals? Like
1: what did you see? I mean, for myself, uh, I'm always a big fan of, like, the northeast and northwest sides of San Antonio just because of age of homes and the um, the population, and the growth, and then the price to rents of what you can get. And, I mean, I know there's some pockets on the south side, and I kind of did some research over there, but uh, it's still one of those, like, houses are older over there. So talk about the age of home. Why Why that is so important to us. Well, I mean, it's just, like... Okay, look at it like people can understand. Like, you buy a car. You buy a brand new car, you're going to pay more money for it, but your first three years, you're not going to spend a whole lot of maintenance. And a lot of times, there's warranties for so many years over that vehicle and stuff like that. So, you pay a higher price, but your maintenance cost is less. Right. Well... Same thing kind of runs with, kind of goes with houses where if I buy a house only 10 years old, like, Hey, the AC still probably in decent condition. The roof's probably still in decent condition. It's got current codes for electrical and plumbing um, and framing. And like a lot of the stuff is still going to be good. You got a lot of life left in the house. But if you buy something from 1950, mm-hmm. well, 1950s, they were using cast iron and concrete uh sewer lines still, or those cast irons, they rust out and they, they deteriorate and they fall apart So whereas like you could have a lot more maintenance that comes along with those things to where the insulation in the walls isn't as good anymore. And that's very expensive to update. You have no insulation in your attic. The ACs are older. The electricals is older. Like everything is older to where the, the doors open and close a lot. The windows are a different mm-hmm. style. They've been open and closed a hundred thousand times where it's like, they don't slide open as much. So your maintenance cost is going to be higher. So that's yeah. why it's like, I'd, unless I can buy something in like in the 1950s, 60s, 70s that I can do a massive overhaul to to update a lot of those things, I, I would probably steer clear of them and try to stay in like the 1980s and or 80s and 90s. Yeah, even then, it's still like I want to see and check those conditions because I'll, I'll everyone says they hate tenants and toilets. It's like. Well, yeah, it's because you tried to put Band-Aids on top of everything just to try to get eke out cash flow and stuff like that. And now your tenants constantly calling you saying like, hey, this thing doesn't work. That thing doesn't work. What about this thing is happening? These lights are going out. It's like, well, it's because an older house. I want to be able to go in, renovate, update all that stuff to where I don't have as many tenant problems. I don't have them contacting me as much about stupid little issues of like, hey, uh, I can't open the garage door. And it's like, well, what's wrong with the garage door? Like, I don't know. When when you look at it, it turns out like they've walled out the – trying to get that door to open and close. The normal latch that the deadbolt goes through, they've adjusted so many times and they've drilled the hole bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point now it's like it just doesn't even lock. It, it sounds like hold. a
0: personal experience here.
1: <laughs> I mean how many times – like it's yeah. happened on the, the house we're renovating right now. It's like I, yeah. the front door is a nice front door, but like it's been – adjusted so many times because the foundation was trash and never fixed that there's just nothing left in the door jam to put the deadbolt into yeah. and it's like it just like even though you lock the deadbolt the door just wiggles back and forth like an inch because there's it's literally hitting the trim that's holding the door in place like well we just got to replace this door now or like those older homes, you're going to have a lot more issues like that Yeah. or like sticking to the newer houses is why I kind of like the Northeast Northwest because I can't see through walls. I can't go through the ground. And a lot of times those risks don't get priced into purchase prices because you have too many retail and the retail investors trying to buy. And they're like, well, everything seems fine. I'm going to go ahead and buy this. Like, did you just go up the plumbing? Well, no. Well, did you? Why not? Like, well, everything seemed to be working fine inside the house. Yeah, but or, or like, even
0: worse that they're like, yeah, but it's five hundred dollars. You understand, you're buying a house. Yeah, like five hundred dollars is not. It's it's much better to do right now and not buy the house than not do it and spend seven well, thousand. We had that conversation
1: plumbing. with somebody like they were proud of like slamming people into like. Uh, there's, there's a wholesale groups. So we all know, I won't name my name, but like, they're almost proud to slam buyers oh, into properties that are trash or crappy. They're like, I can't believe I got that person to buy a boom win in my book. Like, but these people that are buying from those, like those, those wholesale shops, uh, uh like they're not the most, they're novice. They're completely newbies. They don't have a lot of cash, So if you're buying real estate, you can ruin somebody financially for five to 10 years getting into a bad house and where it's like, well, I just didn't have the $500. Like you shouldn't be buying real estate if you can't do proper due diligence. Exactly. Well,
0: and that's also a point that we've been criticized before. And I've mentioned this before how they say, oh, well, you guys buy, you know, using flip numbers, you buy your rentals using flip numbers like, of course, it's going to be much more difficult. You should buy it using more rental numbers. Like, no, because we are actual investors and not speculators. So when we buy a property, we're using numbers that we need to use. It's not flip or rental. It's just the house needs a shit ton of work. Yeah, We're going to do it or we're not going to buy it because we know that if we don't do the work, a year from now, two years from now, it's going to cost us any amount of cash flow we've made and then some, yeah. plus the tenant Picks troubles.
1: And I mean, capital uh, asset... Pricing model put in here is like if retail investing have or if retail investors have unrealistic expectations in house hacking. What are the realistic expectations for a rental investor who wishes to house hack? A retail investor who wants to, wishes to house hack. Um, realistic expectations are it's like the fact that somebody is able to cover your mortgage, to so where or not cover your mortgage to be able to contribute to your mortgage. Where if you look at it, saying like, hey. If I move out of this quote unquote house hack, is it going to be a good rental property without me living in it? Or it's like, for example, it's saying like, Hey, I buy a duplex and my mortgage payment is let's say $1,400 and I can rent out the other side for a thousand and I can rent out my side for a thousand. Well, that thousand dollars still from the other side doesn't cover your mortgage payment. You still have to come out of pocket $400. Right. But if you were to move out of that duplex and now you can rent both sides for a thousand and your mortgage payments only sixteen hundred or fourteen hundred dollars, you now have a six hundred dollars spread in your cash flow. The problem was like uh, when I say the retail and the house hacking investors, like they want a duplex that they can move or quadplex they can move into, and the combined rents of the other unit pay for their mortgage in full, to where it's like okay, you're buying this duplex that it's for a thousand. The other side rents for a thousand dollars. You want a thousand dollar mortgage payment. Well. Now you're talking – you're having to buy a house for a duplex for like 130 grand. Like I'm sorry because now you're saying that like both sides come in for 1000 and your mortgage payment's only only 1000 bucks. Like retail or your retail investors that are 1031 in cash from other places, they've scooped those things up and pushed prices so damn high that it's like you're not going to find those anymore. Or you got to go to very low CD class neighborhoods to kind of find that stuff.
0: And that's the problem that like what you're saying – that's the right way to buy a house. You like we talk quote, about quote, even the w- house hacking with, aspect. Is like- any any aspect. Even when, when we talk about Airbnb, is that the you got to buy a house because it makes sense to buy that house, period, as an investment. The fact that you're going to move into it, or you're going to house hack it, or whatever. That's just an added bonus, right? Because now your your rent is be, your mortgage is being covered. You have a place. You're spending half the mortgage that you would anywhere else, and you have a place to live, right? But it still needs to make sense. The problem is that we're not finding multifamilies that, l- that make sense in areas that we would want to own any multifamilies. Yeah. Because the areas that would cash flow, the kind
1: of tenant you're going to get, the headaches you're going to have with those tenants. Oh, and it comes down to the the, the type of housing. You're going yeah. to go to much older. Oh, yeah. They're like C, D like class. 20s areas. build, yeah, 30s like build. You're dealing with like houses that have weren't duplexed, housed, uh, hacked up into duplexes and yeah. triplexes and stuff like that. Where like you don't know what's behind those walls. You don't know what type of plumbing they did, like, through the walls. and you didn't... No seller's going to let you rip open the walls to check all the plumbing and stuff like that and all the electrical and how that was done. Yeah. Or, like, it's just, eh, I'm not.
0: So, if, uh, if you guys live in San Antonio, we do property tours. And we're doing one Saturday. We're going to be walking uh, Are the three new builds that we're doing in, in the historic district of Nignuity Hill downtown Saturday. So text property tour to 210-794-9898. And, uh, I will let you guys know the time and place and we will be doing that property tour. We'll be showing you that new build and everything like that. So make sure to text 210-794-9898. Um, with that said, moving forward, what do you want to talk about? We got the Biden $6 trillion budget and we have People getting paid to get back to work.
1: What, what are we getting into? I mean, about? I'd say go with the the $6 trillion, $6 trillion budget because I haven't read anything about that. In okay. So,
0: of the, well, there's a reason why you haven't read anything about that. So <laughs> it said uh, the the article was funny because it started off with uh, there you might have taken off early for your Memorial Day weekend. And if you did, you did not hear about President Biden's $6 trillion budget. So it's always one thing that we talk about you know, with politicians and everything. They always pass a lot of the big stuff during holidays and weekends where people are not paying attention. <laughs> but according to the budget, the White House expects that 2.2 trillion American jobs plan to raise the federal deficit by $529 billion over the next 10 years after $1.7 trillion in revenue from tax hikes, mostly for corporations during that period. So they expect the $1.7 trillion coming from tax hikes. Uh, Over the next decade, according to the budget proposal, the American Jobs Plan would spend $565 billion on research and development, manufacturing and job training, $546 billion on modernizing transportation infrastructure, and $308 billion on clean drinking water, the electric grid, and broadband. The Biden administration expects the $1.8 trillion American families plan to raise the deficit by a net of $270 billion over the next decade after accounting for $1.5 trillion in extra revenue from tax hikes, loophole, loophole closers, and enhanced enforcement uh, by the Internal Revenue Service all aimed at the wealthy. Over the next decade, the White House is proposing Uh, spending $437 billion on four years of free education, $498 billion on children and families, including through child care programs and universal family and medical leave, and $450 billion to temporarily extend the expanded child tax credit as part of the American Families Plan. The White House has said it expects both plans to pay for themselves over the next 15 years thanks to the tax hikes included in each. The budget also accounts for $16.8 trillion in discretionary spending over a decade, including $8.2 trillion on the fence. Um, my first thought when I read all this is they, the reason they only expect the deficit to only go up by let's say 530 billion 270 billion is because they expect that the wealthy are going to pay the bulk of this in taxes right so and this is not discussing whether this you know budget is correct or it's wrong or none of that this is just more going on the point of like do you really think that companies and the wealthy are going to just sit there and take those tax hikes? I mean, do you think that that would be... Because th- it seems like that's the biggest place they're expecting the money to come in from, not even from the actual investment that they're making. If uh, I, I would look at it that way, an infrastructure budget. Uh, I would say, you know, you're making an investment in the country, but it doesn't seem like it's coming from that. It seems like it's coming from just raising taxes on on the people to pay for it. So what are your thoughts on this whole
1: budget? I mean it comes down to I think it's very funny when they focus on these things It's saying like, oh, we're gonna raise this money on the taxes of the corporations, we're gonna make them pay. Like, no, you're not. They don't pay. Like, yes, they may be paying a larger percentage as far as like raising it from twenty one to twenty-eight, but it's like that those numbers, like we talked about last week, they get passed on straight to the end consumer. Yeah. And it's like, oh, we're gonna give these American family plans acts. Like you're giving money to people that can't afford housing. So that money is as drastically just housing used to cost two thirty last year, it's two eighty now. They're like so those people that you're trying to help are now immediately priced right back out of the market and they're back at the exact same spot they were then. It's like it's a zero sum game when they're talking about, oh, we're gonna tax the wealthy and give to these people. It's like corporations are just gonna pass that right along. Um I added like an article in here. I mean, just the headline of just like Chipotle said they are raising food prices, all their, all of their food and prices and stuff like at 4% across the board to pay for raising their wages. Like, and McDonald's is doing that. Starbucks is doing that. Walmart, Amazon, like, of course. so you raise their wages, but then just raise the product prices. amount. It's like, so that's a zero sum game. Yeah. You're getting paid more, but you still can't afford more because the prices just went up with them. The housing, I still can't get out of my apartment. I still can't afford a house. Like, yeah, because that doesn't work. It's a zero sum game. Like giving money to people like that, like, doesn't increase their wealth. Like you need to increase their education yeah, and like what they're learning and how to learn and teach them to invest and the rules of money just by giving them money. Isn't going to make them magically smarter with it. It's like, no, it's going to end up the people with experience that know what money is and know how the rules to play the game. Corporations and wealthy individuals. Yeah, it's so like you're going to tax them, but the money's just going to end up right back in their pocket again.
0: Well, that's that's the issue, you know. That's the stuff that we've spoken about plenty of times. Is that I'm, you know, spend the six trillion or however much you feel it is, but why don't you spend it in things that are investing in the country versus doing shit that's like, well, we're going to do all this. Nothing really re- generates a revenue. But we're we're just gonna increase our taxes on the rich people, the people that are producing, right? And they're gonna make up for it. And it's like, you know, there's there's a reason. Like, th- yes, there are tax loopholes. Nobody's saying that there aren't. There are some. Uh, I would imagine probably a lot of tax loopholes. But there's a lot of corporations that are not paying so much in taxes because they're doing what the country needs. Those are called incentives, right? The IRS code has pages of incentives to have the public sector contribute to housing, to jobs, to improvement in technology, to, to I mean entrepreneurs and businesses solve problems much faster than any government is ever going to solve, right? So those are the incentives. That's why like Tesla didn't need to turn a profit since it started because it was funded by the government, right? Like they had a shit ton of subsidies because they're working on uh, alternative energy. They're working on all these things that are good for the economy, they're good for everybody. So it's like they're subsidizing them because they're doing something the government can't do. Yeah. But yet now you're saying that you're going to start punishing pretty much everybody that's making over a certain price point, right? But if you the way to really do it is you got to get rid of those incentives. Because if you still have those incentives, then those people are still not going to be paying any taxes cuz they're still yeah. doing what you want them to do.
1: Yeah.
0: So, is this just posturing and saying the rich are going to pay I money so. or
1: is this, you know, like really I mean, they, Well, the the one portion that I do agree with that would raise money is going after the bad actors. The people that are exploiting call them loopholes are just like the ones that moved to Puerto Rico. Yeah, or just (laughs) um, when they look at this IRS code and this IRS code and this IRS code, it's like, well, they didn't realize that there's you could manipulate those rules to get away with certain things. Like that, yes, that would raise revenue. That would increase taxes and stuff like that. But just across, and that's one of the arguments they're doing with these infrastructure plans is like hey how about instead of raising taxes let's actually go after it let's like let's, let's beef up the defenses we already have the way we increase instead of writing new rules and regulations like we talked about let's go fix all the ones we wrote instead of writing new ones on top of other ones yep. it's like let's fix the broken ones and let's go raise revenue that way to where it says uh we're like he wants eighty thousand new irs people to come in and it's like by doing that it would cost i think it's like say a 100 billion dollars but we expect to make 700 billion by doing so. Like, now there's an investment I can exactly. get behind. As saying, like, okay, you're going after bad actors. You're beefing up defenses to that are already in place, and you're going to go after the people that are exploiting and using the code against it. Because I pay my fair share. I think the people that I play by, should play by the same rules. Yeah. As like, if there's tax credits available, then yeah, they should be getting away with. They should be able to deduct those. Yeah. But going after the bad actors, I think that is because then it's it's like. There's the talks of, we need to raise more money on corporations. I think that would go away when it's like, no, we actually are able to get the money that people are legally supposed to pay. Um, And and it's so.
0: So, and then that kind of leads to a lot of people would say, you know, okay, what we always said, these companies are just going to leave, right? They'll go and set up headquarters in other countries where they don't have to do that. So the G7 got together and they reach a landmark deal on Saturday to squeeze more money out of multinational companies such as Amazon and Google and reduce their incentive to shift profits to low-tax offshore havens. Hundreds of billions of dollars could flow into the coffers of governments left cash-strapped by the COVID-19 pandemic after the Group of Seven advanced economies, advanced economies agreed to bag a minimum global corporate tax rate of at least 15%. G7 finance ministers uh, have reached a historic agreement to reform the global tax system to make it fit the global digital age, said the British finance minister. Uh, US Treasury Janet Yellen says significant unprecedented commitment would end that she's uh, what she called a race to the bottom on global taxation. And then you have a German finance minister. Uh, said bad news for tax havens around the world Yellen also saw the g seven meeting as marking a return to multilateralism under Biden and a contrast to the approach of Trump who alienated okay uh what i 've been what, what i've seen during my time at this g seven is deep collaboration and a desire to coordinate and address a much broader range of global problems she said um Ministers also agreed to the move forward uh, towards making companies declare their environmental impact in a more standard way so investors can decide more easily whether to fund them, whether to fund them or not. Uh, Key details remain to be negotiated over the coming months. Uh, Saturday's agreement is only the largest and most profitable uh, multinational enterprises uh, would be affected. So... The European countries have been concerned that this, would, this couldn't exclude Amazon, which has lower profit margins than most tech companies. But Yellen said that she expected it would be included. How tax revenues can be split is not finalized either. Uh, duh, 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 duh. The French finance minister said that he thinks 15% is too low. Uh, but he uh. says it's a starting point. And so these seven countries for you, uh, if in case you didn't know, it's the U S Japan, Germany, Britain, France, Italy, and Canada. Italy is hilarious. Um, so my thing is like, okay, so you're doing this to take away the tax, what they call the tax haven of, uh, other countries. But it's like, you have other countries that need them because they can't compete with France, the U S Britain, Japan—they're too small. They can't compete. That's what happened to Italy, Portugal, uh, Greece. Spain, Greece during the last financial crisis because they joined the EU. Well, they were forced to join the EU, and when they joined the the EU, like they couldn't keep up with Germany and France. They're small little countries that they were—you know—they weren't exporting that much money. They were good with their currency. But now when they were brought into the Euro, they couldn't afford it. So when that happened, those economies tanked. I mean, Greece, they had how many riots and fights and everything for years, you know, in the financial trouble. So now you're saying like doing this bottom of 15% uh, corporate tax rate, like you're taking the advantage of these other countries to sustain because they can compete with the big ones that way. Now it's like, well, now they can't compete either.
1: Well, I'm just saying like they're, curious how far they can get this like oh we want to be able to do this across the g20 and they're talking about the 20 biggest uh economies like the, the biggest seven got together and like it's the article even says rich nations reached a landmark deal yeah So it's like i don't know why anybody else because they, they can agree with this stuff of course. Like, they can they can afford it like but like you're ireland which is a normal like tax haven and stuff like that they would i don't see why they would ever agree to that as like no there's one It's like there's no accountability now for government do, it's like, there's no private sector. There's no like, oh, everyone's 15 across the board. So now we can absorb all of that. And that's why I said, like over time, it's going to be back to a zero sum game that they're going to exploit and burn and embezzle and waste all that money and be back to like, oh, we need to raise taxes instead of 15% it needs to be 20% now because we're running out of revenue again. Yeah. So and plus is, there's no... For, for those countries, that's even how they become
0: more competitive across the world market because as these major companies come there, they create jobs and education of a higher level because they need people to hire, right? So it creates more employment. I think it creates more skilled labor working for these companies. It brings in more revenue for the country. Like these major corporations going to these other countries that are giving them the tax breaks helps those countries grow and expand and, develop, and be able yeah. to develop in, into something that can keep up with the world as it is. Well, that's the reason but, they have
1: lower taxes to incentivize people to come to exactly. them, to bring jobs and create industry and enrich their people and bring them up uh, into the world. But like, well, now you're forcing them like, oh, but you have to tax 15%. And it's one of these, like, I hope this fails. Like they even talk about, oh, we all agree to this. But then like they talk about it, like, but these multinational or corporate, these massive corporations, like how do you split up that revenue now? So it's like I, I could see this easily falling apart to where it's like, well, the United States wants this. Germany wants that. But like you have a lot of big well, nations. I, what to... I
0: wonder is to China, Russia, India get together and say we won't
1: like, we no, won't do it. We will lower
0: our taxes even further then. Yeah. You know, and what are companies going to do? They're going to go there.
1: Yeah. And that's so, what I said. Like uh, the big government and like the bureaucracies of it, like it's – like I said, it's a zero-sum game. Yeah. I don't see this really going anywhere with it. But – uh,
0: and uh, one, one article that I read that, uh, you know, we talked about before and I thought it was great is uh, the $2,000 back to work bonuses. Um, so still waiting final approval in the state house. The North Carolina proposal, which passed the state Senate with bipartisan approval, would give unemployed residents 1,500 signing bonus if they accept, it, accept the job within 30 days of the bill becoming law and 800 within 60 days. So also on Tuesday, New York lawmakers introduced a bill that would authorize a $1,200 payment to unemployed residents who return to work for at least four weeks. And last week, two Republican Massachusetts state senators proposed a similar bill calling for 1,200 sign-on bonuses payable in three increments spread out over a full year. Republican control, Montana is doing it. Uh, you have New Hampshire marketing. So marketing, the biggest return to work bonus so far, Arizona rewards residents who are newly employed full-time with a $2,000 payment after 320 hours of work and a thousand dollars to those who obtain part-time employment and work at least 160 hours. So Democrats states have also gotten on board. With Connecticut providing a one-time $1,000 payment to the first 10,000 long-term unemployed people uh, who return to work in at least eight consecutive weeks before the end of this year, most recently Colorado authorized $1,600 payments for unemployed people who transitioned into full-time work, and May in May and $1,200 for those returning this month, uh, with both payments contingent on eight weeks of employment. So. It, it's what i like is like before this was being criticized and now we're seeing i mean new york I, I, when i saw new york on there i was well, like i think what? it's like
1: okay where's all this money coming from it's like what, nothing tells me more that like hey we pay too much money to the politicians and governments than this right here it's like they have extra money that they're like well now we okay so we're just going to incentivize people to get back to work and give them money it's like where did you get that money from I was like you taxed away, and now you're saying we're just gonna take from somewhere in our budget and we're gonna create this oh, extra money and give money. it back. It's just like, what are you doing? Like, that's that's where it's odd to me. It's always like, nothing tells me taxes are too high and we pay too much to the government. And it but proves regard- that we just embezzle and waste and burn cash and in their inefficiencies. To where it. it's like, now yeah, we can just randomly come up with an extra hundred million, 300, 500 million dollars just to give to people for returning. To I trust. don't know,
0: I, I still prefer that over what we're having. Because at least this way, you are incentivizing people to get back to work. The way I look at it is, when is the uh, the housing market going to stable off? When are things going to be a little bit back to normal or a little bit more normal, not so crazy? Is when more and more people get back to work. The more people that get back to work, the more that supply chains are going to get back to normal. The more businesses are going to be able to operate at normal capacity. The more things are going to stable off on prices. Like People need get, to get back to work. And we've seen that. If you pay people, you can incentivize them to do one thing or the other. So they were getting paid to stay home. Now that overcorrected. So now they need to get paid to go back to work where I think this is a much smarter investment because yes, you know, it's tax dollars. Of course we're paying for that anyway, but at the end of the day, it's like, okay, but at least more people are working, which is going to be good for the overall economy. It's going to be good for the health of the economy, for job market, for everybody. You know what I mean? So I think, I get your frustration, I guess, with uh, using well, I mean, the no, money. But yeah, at the end of the, the day.
1: Frustrations. But it's like I do agree. I still agree with you. It's like yes, I do prefer them to do this. If they're going to do it, I'd at least do it this way. Right. But it's also one of the things like I'm still not happy with the very beginning of like where did you get this from? Like the fact that's where my issue is. Like where did you get this extra well, I'm glad you're at least using it this way and giving it to people like incentivize people to get back to work and produce. That means like, Hey, uh, we don't want any more freeloaders. We're going to try to incentivize you to get back to work and do something useful to the economy. So, <laughs> Capital
0: asset prices says politicians on the left do not write checks. They just endorse checks, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. but I think every politician just yeah, endorses them. Yeah. Like somebody else writes them, but it, I think it's the unelected politicians that, uh, write them. Uh, yeah. but it's the, I like the ones that just endorse it. Uh, But I mean, switching, not Mm -hmm. switching topics, but like all this extra money, all this extra printing, all this extra, all these housing costs and everything. I mean, a big topic that I turn on the news, people talking about inflation and the core inflation rates uh, came out yesterday. Why is it? Okay. And the inflation data for May came in hotter than Wall Street expected with core inflation at a 29 year high. And we've talked about inflation multiple times over the last several weeks, uh, months, about what all this money printing can really do. The Consumer Price Index, or CPI, rose 0.6 from the prior month and 5% from a year ago. The Labor Department said Thursday. The annual inflation rate was the high since August of 2008. The core CPI, which strips out volatile food and energy categories, rose 0.7% from April. The 3.8% core inflation reading was the strongest since June of 1992. Economists were looking for a 0.4% increase in both the overall and core CPI, but they got 06 and 07 Supply constraints and high demand fueled by the fading COVID threat and fiscal stimulus have combined to stir up the biggest broad-based inflation rise in a generation. Industries that are struggling to keep up with demand and facing increases in their own input costs, including labor costs appear to be passing along price price hikes. Chipotle Mexican grill, which recently hiked its average wage to $15 an hour said this week, that is passing a 4% price price hike to consumers. So what are your takes on that? And now you're starting to see 29 years. we all we've had many discussions. We don't agree with the inflation stuff like that, where they hide the numbers and things, but now it's like, They're at 29 years highs. Like they can't hide these numbers anymore. Where it's like they're moving things around, trying to manipulate it. But it's like we can't hide this anymore. It's back to June of 1992.
0: We're hitting. Well, my thing is like they're at 29 year highs based on the metrics that they put out. But what I'm more concerned about, and this is something that you and I were talking about, is that I don't look at government numbers, right? I look at like the public, what really is going on around you. And to me, inflation has Gone up a lot more than that, not just that you know, .6 percent. yeah, okay buddy. you know And it's you look at across the board, anything groceries, rents, living wages, uh, living expenses. Uh, anything that to me is should be the CPI, because that's what you need to live has gone up drastically, way
1: more than .6 percent. I'm curious, like I always say, if you strip out food and energy costs, what is really left? iPads. I, I forget what that idiot should.
0: said. That uh, this was back in like uh, 2010, I think. They're like, "But well, what are you talking about? An iPad is still worth what it was worth last year. You you still buy a brand new iPad." And then somebody from the crowd jumped up and he's like, "Hey, fuck face. They're like, "I can't eat an iPad." <laughs> <laughs> I can't eat an iPad, and, but, idiot. <laughs> and that was uh, that was what was funny is that, like, yeah, they use for these gauges things that you're like okay and who the hell uses that yeah. you know what I mean like you I look at actual living expenses right your mortgage, your rent, your light your uh water, your groceries your car your yes, gas the maintenance like all the stuff to like the function in society yeah I mean you look at all those things and it's like I, I, at the minimum it's up ten percent year over year at the minimum groceries I mean we were doing our finances last week and I was looking at our grocery bill and Val's was like how the hell do I bring it down? I was like, it's not, how can you bring it down? Like shit, it's just that expensive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you go through the grocery store now and you buy the same things you bought a year ago. And it's like, I'm paying a lot more for
1: this now. Oh, I mean, I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. Like I went to the grocery store and I just bought a few items and it was like $49, like 49 bucks. I got six items. Like, did you ring like, something 40, three times or like, something? What the hell? I mean, I knew what it was, but it's still just like, God dang, man. No. Like It's just insane. Like some of this stuff, they're like, in- yeah, this is what it is. No,
0: inflation is for sure here. Um, but we covered this a while ago already. You know, you have a article by the Fed that they're like, don't worry about the money printing. Don't worry about unemployment numbers. Those are things of the past. We're not gauging. So as far as the government goes, and this is why it's important for you guys listening to understand this, is that when the government, whatever metrics the government is using, whatever, whether you agree that it's right or wrong, those are the metrics they're using. And if they say they target a 3% uh, GDP growth year over year, and this is what they're using to gauge it, then you better believe that there's going to be more money printing because those metrics are not hitting what they want to hit. Yeah. When you look at the real numbers, it's like, yeah, we're way above it. But it's like, that's not what they use. They can, and whenever these numbers start growing, they'll just switch something else out to bring it right back down. So when you're trying to predict the future, that's how you do it. You predict the future by understanding what you guys are printing the money, doing the policies, doing everything. What is it that you use to gauge whether or not you're going to do more of this? This is what you use. Okay, I'm going to watch that. Whether I believe in it, agree with it, it doesn't matter because they do. So when we look at these things, it's like, and people say, when is the market going to crash and all that? I'm like, I don't see what you guys are looking at that would make you even think the market is going to crash. You know, there's just nothing.
1: I don't know. But, well, uh, it, it's one of those things that uh, – I have an article in here to where they, they say, oh, don't worry about inflation. Everything from the Fed, uh, U.S.-based anyways, is saying like, oh, don't worry about inflation. It's under control. We're going to see a spike, but it's going to come right back down kind of thing. Well, Deutsche Bank uh, has the complete opposite uh, view on that. So Deutsche Bank warns of global time bomb coming due to rising inflation. And I just looked it up. Deutsche Bank is no small bank. They have approximately $1.3 trillion in U.S. assets and the eighth largest investment firm of eighth largest investment bank globally in the world. So they kind of got a little power and might know what's going on. So inflation may look like a problem that inflation may look like a problem that will go away, but it is more likely to persist and lead to a crisis in years ahead. According to a warning from Deutsche bank economists, In a forecast that is well outside the consensus from policymakers and Wall Street, Deutsche Bank issued a dire warning that focusing on stimulus while dismissing inflation fears will will prove to be a mistake, if not in the near term, then in 2023 and beyond. The analysis especially points the finger at the Federal Reserve and its new framework in which it will tolerate higher inflation for the sake of a full and inclusive recovery. The consequences of delay will be a greater disruption of economic and financial activity than would be otherwise be the case when the Fed does not does finally act. Deutsche Bank's chief economist, David hmm. – I'm not even going to pronounce that last <laughs> name <laughs> – and, and others wrote, in turn, this could create a significant recession and set off a chain of financial distress around the world, particularly, particularly in emerging markets. So you have a massive bank – coming with the exact opposite of what the wall street and federal reserve. So you have the two opposite theories of thought of like what's going to happen. You got wall street and fed saying, this is no problem. We'll be able to handle this. It's going to be under control. But the other side is like, no, I think you're actually going to have more problems than what you think you're going to cause and create because of this inflation that we're seeing. And I mean, I, I, uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly of just like, you look at these things and it's like, there's inflation everywhere. Yeah. I mean, gas prices, food prices, everything. It costs just a daily living. It just seems like there's less at the end of the month than there was before than a year or two ago. Even they're saying, Oh, it's modest. It's, it's controllable. It's, it's, it's decent. It's like, mm, I don't know about They've that. They've never been able to control
0: inflation. They never been able to control it when they wanted it. They never been able to control it when they didn't want it because it's not in their control. And that's what they need to understand. Like, Who controls inflation in reality is the people. Like, if you scare the shit out of people, they're not going to consume. They're not going to spend. They're not going to go out, right? It causes deflation. If you encourage them and you give them money and you put out all this shit, they go out shopping, right? And they spend the shit ton. And then you have more demand after less material and you get prices to go up. And then you have a perfect storm like we have now where people were flushed with cash and then everything shut down. And supply chains and everything dropped. That's like ammo prices. They've come down a little bit. Uh, I was looking the other day for a box of uh, 9 mils. I, I, I've i been seeing them between 30 and 35 a box. When last year, I was seeing them at like 60, 65. And these are just full metal jacket, not even hollow points. Those are target range. But they've come down a little, right? Because the demand went down a little.
1: So I, I saw I actually saw uh, Academy has 9 millimeters in stock on their shelves, ready to go but whoa it, but it's all it's steel casing it's not uh, your brass so like they had I was like oh man they got a lot of ammo then I saw it was all steel casing I was like ooh like never mind cuz I've shot steel casing out of my my carry uh and it doesn't like steel casing at all I'll get like 2 3 shots and boom it'll jam I can shoot brass all day long and no problem just rapid fire I have no issues steel casing not work mm. yeah well but i mean we're starting to
0: see those things but yeah i mean It's just one of those things that, uh, you know, inflation, I don't think they can control it. I I think especially what ends up happening is you overcorrect always, right? You overcorrect to get it and then you overcorrect to decrease it. And then the government does these whipsaws that we're seeing. And that's how I look at the market right now. I believe the market at the moment that we're in is doing a big ass whipsaw, right? Like, and it's just it whipped in one direction And then it's going to whip back in another direction and it's going to be another shock until it kind of like it it loses that momentum a little bit. It's never going to go as as
1: far as it did back and forth. like the ping pong effect or you drop a ball. It just never gets as high each time it gets lower and lower until it comes its resting place. When people say,
0: you know, Wednesday, I'm like, it's going to be like that. I think we're going to have – there's a bunch of crazy shit right now. And then it's going to come back the other way and we're going to have a bunch of crazy shit then. And then it's going to be a little bit less crazy, a little bit less. And maybe in two, three years – we're gonna see a little bit more normalcy, yeah. uh, you know. Buyers. Well, that's comp- what we talked
1: about. It's like, okay, lumber prices are up 300, 400 percent. It's like, who's making that extra three, four hundred percent? It's like, there's when are an- you gonna find out? Stop well, that's the what question. I said, <laughs> like, uh, that's the whipsaw. It's like, it's eventually. It's yeah. like everyone, like, it's gonna, you think yeah. it's, it's spread out? Everybody's making ten percent more than they get five percent less. It's just jumping all over the place because there's so much liquidity around. Like, it's gonna take for normalcy for everything to kind of. Find that equilibrium right. again. And there's a funny article or comment here. Randy Garcia says, uh, I was forced to go buy food stamps because of the rise in grocery prices. So I went and bought five briskets. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You got yeah. meat for days right there. But um, something, I, an article I've had in here for several weeks uh about these kind of things mm. and it's like i, I look around i was like being observant so you read the news see what they're saying and then when you go out and read like interacting in today's economy yeah there's prices that are inflated but it seems like there's like always going to home depot and like there's there's lots of lumber there still and there's lots of traffic out There's still it seems like every store is open every store is packed like why is there more stimulus? Meaning, where is the stimulus need, or is like, or is it just here in Texas because we've been open for quite some time? And we are open. That there's other places in the yeah. country that aren't like they're still shut down. They're still restrictive. I know California still has restrictions on, and Newsom even said he's not going to relinquish his uh, executive powers because the pandemic's still raging in his terms. Yeah. Um, and it's like, so why is all this stuff coming from? And um, Fed says the economy is strong, but it's still way too early to tighten policy. While this while it's her name is uh, Mary Daly, while she encourages encouraged by the economic progress, San Francisco Federal Reserve President Mary Daly told CNBC on Tuesday that it's not time to change policy. We haven't been substantial for We haven't seen substantial further progress just yet. We're still looking for substantial further progress, Dally said during a live Closing Bell interview. What we've seen is some really bright spots, some very encouraging news. It gives me hope, and I am bullish for the future, but it's too early to say that the job is done. Several central bank officials have said over the past weeks they believe it will be – time soon to start discussing a reduction in the minimum 120 billion of bonds. The federal reserve is buying each month, along with almost all of her fed colleagues. She sees the current price pressures as a result of temporary supply bottlenecks that will ease as demand returns to normal, along with base effects of companies to where the economy was a year ago during the pandemic induced economic shutdown, shut down. Yeah. <laughs> but it is like, What is more money going to do? I feel like the more money is causing these problems to persist.
0: But I think it's also look at every policy, everything that they do, right? Like you hear about it and then it, yet it still takes months for it to actually play out, for it to actually go in. But by then the market has adjusted to that. The stock market has adjusted to it. People are adjusting to that coming down. So by the time it actually hits, it gets absorbed so quickly, right? Or it gets used up so quickly, or maybe it's not needed because the market already adjusted and the policies took so damn long to come out. So I think with all the stimulus and everything, like, yeah, I mean, I think it's just still a, a trickle effect of just delayed stimulus, you know? Yeah, that but just, then you
1: have the G20 GDP returns to pre-pandemic levels. Yeah. Our GDP is already back to where it was before the pandemic. Yeah. And but it's also interesting to read this is like the group of 20 economies saw gross domestic product return to pre-pandemic levels in the first quarter of 2021 but the lar- but with large differences emerging between nations. Year on year GDP growth from the G20 rebounded to 3.4% in the first quarter of 2020 following a contraction of 0.7 in the previous quarter. China, where the coronavirus pandemic emerged, recorded the highest annual growth, 18.3% while UK recorded the largest annual fall of minus 6.1. And yeah. you kind of read into the article a little further, they give a whole bunch of stats. Like Pretty much there was a very few that actually emerged and were growing. Like U.S. was like 0.1 or 0.2 or something like that year over year. And like a ton of European countries were just decimated and still being decimated by this with uh, falls where it's like, Okay, so China, you had the the issue started with you, yeah, and now you're the first one to come out of this thing, just actually absolutely, absolutely exploding. And uh, I mean, a lot of it's where all our consumer products are coming from. So all these people that get all this extra money, like they buy these products. Where does that products go? They order it from China, so it's no surprise to see it go through the roof. But it's one of those that's like, why aren't some of these other G twenty countries getting pissed of just like, hey, our economies are being destroyed, decimated, our people are hurting. And the people that where this problem originated, call it man-made, call it on purpose, whatever you want to call it, is now benefiting from this issue that is at hand. Yeah. So this is something that's very interesting. But then it's, it's like, we need more stimulus. It's like, oh, so you're providing more stimulus that seems to be ending up in China's pockets where all these consumer products are created. Interesting to me. It, it is.
0: No, it's insane. It's uh It's exactly what we're talking about. Just things. I think it just goes back to the same thing. Policies just they take forever to catch up, and you know, all politics. Yeah, but but those are the things that are gonna when we talk about like what's when's the market gonna correct? When's it gonna crash? When's it gonna do something? It's like there's no end in sight because there's still so much of these things that are still coming in, and they're still trying to push for that uh, two trillion dollar you know, Save America, whatever that plan stimulus
1: is. The infrastructure plan?
0: Yeah, that, that $2 trillion plan. I mean, so it's just more and more stimulus. That's And even after that, they're planning even more. So it's like, those are already in
1: the works. So when's it going to slow down? So what's this article you have here? It's like now we're, so worse, so we're talking several things that show that the economy is doing well, the job market is doing well, but you have an article in here that says, U.S. labor market worse than it appears, Fed paper. So what is, Yeah. So what do you got there? What's the opposite argument?
0: I don't feel like reading this one. Okay, but... um. <laughs> Well, don't put the US, a cool headline then. The U.S. Uh, labor market signals are conflicting to an unprecedented degree, but those suggesting labor market slack should be given more weight than those pointing to tightness, according to a paper published Monday by uh, San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. The paper looked at 26 labor market measures that typically move in tandem and found that during the current recovery— they are given widely divergent signals about the health of the job market. The job market, uh, the job opening rate, for instance, suggests the job markets is much tighter than the unemployment rate. The labor force participation rate points to much more slack than detected in the unemployment rate. Because the pandemic has forced so many people out of the workforce, negative signals such as the low labor force participation rate provided a better read than do the positive signals. Our overall findings reveal that the labor market situation is worse than some headline numbers suggest. U.S. central bankers are debating how tight the U.S. market has become amid widespread reports from employers about hiring difficulties, even as the economy sits. Uh, economy still has 8 million fewer people uh, working than before the pandemic. The question matters because the Fed says it could start reducing its support for the, the economy once inflation and the labor market have made substantial further progress uh, towards Fed's goal of two percent inflation and a maximum employment and maximum employment. It hadn't, however, laid out exactly how it will measure that progress. <laughs>
1: the US <laughs> we're going to unemployment do whatever we want to do to make the numbers we want them to
0: make. There you go. The US unemployment rate was 6.1% in April, and reading for May is due out on Friday. Um, but again, going about what we were talking about, like why all this stimulus and everything. I don't remember reading the article. I see that it says I did, but I don't remember reading the article of uh all the Americans that quit their jobs in April. But this was, you know, another uh, one that 4 million Americans quit their jobs in April. So job vacancies rose to a 20-year high in April, the Labor Department said on Tuesday. 20-year high. The department also said 4 million workers had quit their jobs in April, another 20-year record. Job quits quits (laughs) rose the most in the retail sector, and in professional and business services. Companies were advertising 9.3 million job openings at the end of April, up 12% from the previous month, the department said. The number of vacancies grew most in the accommodation and food service sectors, which are opening up after more than a year of COVID uh, restrictions Vacancies fell in educational services and mining and lodging. The job openings rate, job openings as a percentage of total jobs plus vaccines was up 6%. Businesses have reported severe labor shortages in recent weeks. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce last week described the shortage as a national economic emergency and an imminent threat to our fragile recovery. Fares on the ride hauling apps Uber and Lyft surged by as much as four, uh, 40% in April. And the same time last year, a research firm found that, that thanks to a driver shortage. Uh, in, a surveys con- in a survey conducted in May by the National Community of Pharmacists, found four in five local pharmacies said they'd struggle to find enough people to do the things like deliver prescriptions and run cash register. So you're seeing the massive shortage that there is in entry-level jobs. So the job market that got hurt the most is still the job market that's still being hurt the most because now people want higher wages because they don't want to give up their unemployment. They don't want to give up the benefits that they have for what they used to be getting. Right. Because it's like, well, nah, no, there's no need for it right now. I believe that those we're going to be seeing a change in all that area. But hiring seems to have gotten much harder. I'm speaking to more and more people and family members that are looking for jobs, submitting applications everywhere, even for entry positions. They don't even get callbacks. So I don't know what the heck is going on with that, with with the job market. I don't know what's because you hear these things. Oh, there's so much shortage. But then when I'm talking to people that are applying, they're like, we can't get a job anywhere. Like, no, like we're sending in applications and we're not getting even callbacks. And, uh, I don't know. I found it very, very interesting. I was like, this
1: is, this is some strange things. Well, that's that it's like, it's very, very basic level jobs. Like we can't find people to deliver prescriptions, run cash registers, Service industry events that just requires delivering food. It's like, it's all just, it's exactly that. We talked about like people that got the money that benefited from this crisis are the ones that had money. Yeah, They even have more money. They're wanting to go out and consume even more and go out of these things. But the people that got hurt the most had no money. They have no money gotten them they are and they're not being benefited to where like returning to the jobs they're like i don't want to go back to that job because i can't sustain a living at these current prices to go work a cash register for eleven dollars an hour fifteen dollars an hour ain't really that much yeah. for or those things so i don't know to where like the entry-level jobs like driving for uber and lyft it's like well you really don't make a minimum or medium price point wages living off of driving for uber and lyft only and also you gotta have a good car like you can't have a nineteen ninety two uh Toyota Corolla to uh, drive and then Uber. used car prices, everything has gone through the roof. Can't get a sustainable so, car, yeah. Yeah. Or like it, it yeah, I can see it's like okay, entry level jobs. It's like, well, I don't consider like working like your entry level that they're your career starter entry level jobs. Yeah. they are not career jobs. So I think that's the kind of stuff that they're doing. And
0: I would love to see, like, if anybody likes to do the research, I would like to see, like, ZipRecruiter and, I don't know, other places where people go to see if they are putting stats of how many people are are actually applying for jobs and not, like, how many people are applying for these entry-level jobs? Like, how many people do you have going after each job? You know, is it something that you have, like, 100 people going after one entry level job or is it like nobody's really going, you're seeing more job posts. Like I would like to see those actual stats from you know these companies that they, they do job placement and recruiting and stuff like that. But um, one thing I wanted to make sure that we talked at the beginning and I wanted to hit for the San Antonio market that's important is again, like I said, San Antonio is still seen as one of the fastest growing cities. And we're about to see a $60 million food warehouse uh, being built in the heart of San Antonio. So, or I guess it would be the shoulder of San Antonio. A Texas developer has its uh, eyes on the Alamo City. On June 8th, Dallas-Fort Worth-based Cold Creek Solutions announced plans for a massive food refrigeration warehouse near the intersection of I-10 and 410 in North San Antonio. So, I mean, like right here. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a a pretty densely populated area. Uh, Clocking in at a sprawling 305,000 square feet, the warehouse is estimated to cost $60 million and will provide storage for 45,000 pallets of frozen or refrigerated products once construction is complete. Like its uh, first warehouse, which is located in Denton, and scheduled to be completed by summer of 2022 css will lease the space to individuals food manufacturers and companies according to the company they expect anywhere from 100 to 200 jobs to be created depending on who rents those spaces such rapid growth the company notes that has created a critical shortage of cold storage so the rapid growth that we're having in san antonio is creating an issue Unlike existing existing vintage facilities and other new builds in the region, this new project designed by ARCO National Construction will allow for large-scale or multi-operator build-out with tremendous efficiencies uh, as far as the build of this. So CSS it anticipates the fall groundbreaking and the warehouse to open late 2022. Leasing opportunities are available. Well, I think this is
1: also a problem, like, oh, we're bringing more jobs. Like, they're warehouse jobs.
0: More entry-level.
1: Yeah, it's like they're all entry-level basic jobs. Uh, It's like... But those are what we're
0: saying that is still the the highest rate of unemployment is supposedly those entry-level jobs. So, I mean... And then you have places like, you know, they're trying to force McDonald's and all these other places to raise their minimum wage to $15. So, you have entry-level jobs that start paying more. I mean... We'll see. We'll definitely expect that. My thing to that is like, that's higher rent. Yeah. If you own a house in that area, which we recently bought, and now it's even more of a reason to keep it. Uh, you're talking about 410 and I-10. You are as close to the center of transporting to pretty much anywhere from there, because you can go up to Bernie. You can go across 410, up 35 to Austin, New Braunfels. I mean, you can get anywhere in the city because you're right
1: there. You know what I mean? You can get to downtown in like five minutes. Well, it's like Amazon's new warehouse that or distribution center warehouse that they're building right there off uh, Wurzbach. It's like they get right on Wurzbach and they can get anyway, west, west very quickly.
0: Yeah. So that is going to affect rentals in the area. It's going to affect home values. It's going to affect the job market. I mean, those things are good. So for those of you that are wondering, does San Antonio make sense for rentals? There you go. So I, we still have a few minutes and I wanted to add one little article from our... WTF segment. Italian artist sells an invisible sculpture for more than $18,000. That is not fake. That is real news of an Italian artist. And he gets very offended if you, don't, if you think he's trying to be funny. $18,000 for an invisible art piece that he says you need to have a space of five by five in your house to put it up. It's invisible. It literally does not exist. There's nothing there. It's sold for
1: $18,000. And that's not a sign that there's too much money in the market. <laughs> People got too much. What's that line from uh, Gone in Six Seconds? self indulgent wieners in this. Too, yeah. too much bloody money. Like yep. right, right there. Like I have an invisible sculpture. What? Yeah, I paid eighteen grand for that. Like real money, like eighteen real thousand dollars. <laughs> I have this invisible, <laughs> what you call it, right here, and it's I'm just, selling it for it, a measly price of five hundred dollars. It's it just me, getting it to crazy you.
0: to the point of like that's you can't question it, you can't mock it, you can't make fun of it because that they believe that's it's it's their belief system. It's yeah, true. Yeah, that's like it just keeps opening up the the space for more ridiculous shit of you know. Well, I believe this to be this, or I believe that to be that, and nobody can question it. I'm like, come on, guys. At some point, we're going to say, hey, cut the shit out, go home.
1: You know. then like- uh, uh, Randy Garcia was like, I heard he got paid in doggy coin. <laughs> yeah, he probably did. He probably did. The rest is like, oh, my God. You're saying you got invisible sculptures now, and you can't call it what it is. Like You can't call a spade a spade anymore. It's like, that's dumb. Well, that's just offensive. You can't. That's You're, you're woke. Like, the whole like cancel yeah, thing comes you're, you're after you're not you. woke. Like, like oh <laughs> my god, so
0: I don't know. And capital as it says that take huevos. <laughs> yeah, it does though. It <laughs> does. The, the boss would go and say, "I'm selling this space of air here for eighteen thousand dollars." You know what I mean? Like it's. I want. I want to see him carry it, or or deliver it. Oh, you yeah. will get delivery because we're very busy. In two months, you will have it in your house. It's, it's like, like, it's very carefully, like, scoops it up. We need four guys to move it. Only, only he can see it. Like, oh, careful,
1: careful, careful. Watch out. Don't
0: chip it. Just like everyone. Just... I wonder if you can get insurance on it. Oh, God. Because you can insure art sculptures. And I wonder if you can get insurance on an invisible piece of art. And then at that point, what's stopping anybody from writing invoices for anything? You get what I'm saying? Like, hey, I just sold the business a $20,000 you know, painting so you can write me an invoice for 20 grand. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. So uh, with that, we're wrapping up. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Coffee with the Johns every Friday morning, 8 a.m. Uh, and join our text community. That's where we put out a lot of tips and stuff and uh, also announcements. And we do have a workshop. We're going to be uh, launching in, uh, I believe, like, the second or third weekend in august and it's going to be on a saturday and it's going to be about uh how to manage a renovation how to manage a rehab and we're going to go over everything about a rehab so if you're interested in that texas uh info at two one zero seven nine four nine eight nine eight. and with that being said we'll catch you all next week bye-bye